Hello and welcome to the Training for Influence podcast, brought to you by me, Tammy Banks, Director of Tay Training and founder of the Training for Influence method. But it's not just me who you'll be hearing from. I'll be joined by a selection of our expert facilitators, as well as sector colleagues and fellow organisations, all in an effort to provide important learnings for key workers, people on the front line who are new, potentially inexperienced, volunteering, possibly agency workers, or perhaps returning to work, previously retired professionals. This podcast is not a replacement for training. It aims to highlight important topics to act as an introductory resource for those delivering services under these unprecedented circumstances. We're covering safeguarding, managing challenging behaviour, risk management, professional boundaries, equality and diversity and the Mental Capacity Act. We asked our facilitators to select five top takeaways from a course they deliver. Takeaways the delegates have fed back that are really key or they as a facilitator think are fundamental to the session. In this episode we'll be talking to Tay facilitator Laura about the top learnings from our Mental Capacity Act course. We'll be covering what is the Mental Capacity Act and the five principles. Welcome Laura. Hi Tammy, thanks for having me. Thank you for coming, it's really appreciated. No, it's a great opportunity to uh, talk about mental capacity. It's such an important area. Absolutely. Laura, would you mind just telling our listeners a little bit about yourself and why you deliver this course? Yeah, I mean, I was thinking about this the other day, about my experience of care and support. And actually, it goes back almost to childhood when I was helping my mum, who's a nurse, out in one of her nursing homes and keeping elderly people company and helping them with their tea and things. And then as I got older, did quite a lot of work with people with learning difficulties, people in the community when I was at uni and at college and things, helping people who were recovering from brain injury to get back to, to doing what they need to do in their life, running their business, that kind of thing. And then getting into housing support work about 20 years ago, working primarily with 16 to 25 year olds, care leavers, people who are homeless, people with mental health issues and substance misuse and ex-offenders. And then started to move into management roles, managing similar services. So, you know, ex-offender services and family services. So that's a kind of potted history of my experience today. Fantastic. What a great mix of history you've got there and great mix of experience. And one of the things that straight away comes to mind to me is with the Mental Capacity Act, quite often people assume that actually it's only relevant to certain groups of people. And you're talking there about a whole eclectic group of people from people with care and support needs to homelessness to people with substance misuse difficulties and such like. Absolutely. I think that's the beauty of the Mental Capacity Act, actually. It's there to protect all of us, whether it's we are born with a particular condition that makes it difficult for us to make decisions or whether we have an accident ourselves and we have a brain injury accident, for example. That act is there to protect us at every point where we need to make decisions about our own lives. It's such a powerful piece of legislation. The Mental Capacity Act is crucial in all of those areas and crucial for me as a person and for our listeners as people too and their families. The Mental Capacity Act isn't just relevant for our clients, it's relevant for all of us. At some point, we could have an accident, which means that we need help to make our decisions. And that's why the act is so good. Yeah, absolutely. And I remember watching the Mental Capacity Act training being delivered 
probably about six months or a year ago now and you gave some really good examples as well about the fluctuating capacity and how our capacity can be influenced by other things such as situations and substances and accidents and illness like you've just explained there. Absolutely. Capacity fluctuates. You know, today I can make all of my decisions complex and everyday decisions, but tomorrow something might happen to me and I might need help and support and I might need someone to act in my best interest to make those decisions for me. It's so good to know that that protection is there actually. Yeah, so do you mind just telling us a little bit about what the Mental Capacity Act is then? You've done a really good job of explaining how we can use it, but what is the Mental Capacity Act? So the Mental Capacity Act, it's a law. So it's a piece of legislation that came out in 2005. It's relatively recent when you think of how many decades we've been looking after people, supporting people, vulnerable people, people with complex needs. And the act came about because a lot of care providers were saying, you know, we need something that says this is the best practice because we're so confused sometimes about choice and about how we can empower people. And it's so different up and down the country as well about how we support people who may lack capacity to make decisions and also it was on the back of two cases one where a young woman who had learning difficulties and was having a relationship and her mum and doctors felt that she didn't have capacity to for example if she became pregnant she wouldn't have capacity to understand what that meant and that led to her being sterilized which you know as you can imagine that's a huge infringement really of someone's liberty and freedom And then the next case that came was a young man with autism had ended up in um, the mental institution, actually, that he'd originally come from, taken away from his foster parents because the hospital felt it was in his best interest. Actually, what had happened is he got very upset on his bus, which was taking him to a day centre. And instead of just ringing the foster parents and saying, you know, what, what can we do? They actually whisked him off to hospital and he was there for four months. And so the law actually changed because of those cases. The parents of the man who ended up in the hospital, they took this case to the Court of Human Rights to get the law changed, which meant that we now have protection against having our freedoms taken away. It gives protection to all of us and our families, you know, our mums and dads and our siblings and ourselves, not just the people that we work with. So even when people come on the course and they're not frontline workers, We have administrators, for example, who come on and actually they go away and can use that information in their own lives, even if they're not working on the front line. Yeah, and that's a really good point. And I can say quite honestly that after learning more about mental capacity about three years ago, both myself and my husband completed lasting power of attorney forms. Brilliant. Um, And I'd never, ever considered previously the importance of those lasting power of attorney forms. And it was from coming on the Mental Capacity Act training and observing it and sitting there and thinking, actually, yeah, things can change in a second that made me go away and I need to go through this process. It's really important that people have an understanding, both for themselves, but really importantly for the customers that we're working with as well, because we have a professional responsibility to be able to support them and to be able to advocate for them as well. So. So this is probably a good point to find out what your five key learning points from the course are, because there's a lot of good stuff, isn't there? Yeah, although it's a three hour course, actually, we pack quite a lot into it. And what's really good about the mental capacity course is that 
usually everybody on the course has something to say they have an experience whether it's working with a client or they have an experience in their personal life about LPAs for example and they bring that to it and it just makes it so much more colourful as a course but I'm lucky in terms of the Mental Capacity Act because you know the Mental Capacity Act gives us five principles that you know if you forget everything else about mental capacity if you remember those five principles you won't go far wrong so those are the five that I was going to talk about today. Oh, brilliant. How fantastic is that? It's like it's been written perfectly for this podcast. Definitely. And hopefully, because we're thinking of the five fingers on our hand, if we're sitting listening to this on the train and we can look at our hand and, you know, remember that those are the five principles. It's quite a nice way to remember them, actually. So let's talk about your learning point number one, then. I'm thinking of my thumb right now. So what's yes, so, the... <laughs> so if everybody can think of their thumb and maybe put their thumbs up, or think of it in their mind's eye. So the first principle of the Mental Capacity Act is that we assume people have capacity because often people, because of their condition or their appearance or their age, sometimes we assume that they don't have capacity. It happens a lot with people with learning difficulties, for example, that they don't have capacity. So the first principle is until we know otherwise, until there's evidence to say somebody doesn't, we assume someone has capacity to make their own decision. So that's a really important first principle. That's really important and actually can't be underestimated because just by stopping and assuming that somebody has capacity and working back from there, I can already just envisage when you're talking about those case examples right at the beginning, those cases, if they'd started from the point of assuming those people had capacity, actually maybe the outcome would have been quite significantly different. Absolutely. A, they would have paused, first of all, and thought about what they were doing. And also, it may have become you know, evident that those two people didn't have capacity to make complex decisions. But then they would have started to think, well, what would they want? They could make that decision for themselves. And it's just a totally different process when you slow it down and really think about it in those terms. Instead of coming from the position that because someone has a disability or because someone's using a substance, they don't have any capacity, it really shifts the balance, actually. And the balance of power really shifts as well when we start to assume straight away that someone has capacity. Brilliant. No, that's fantastic. Thank you, Laura. And that's a really important key learning point one and first principle of the Mental Capacity Act. So take us on to your number two then, please. Okay, so the second one is your index finger. So imagine that I'm pointing at you, all of our listeners, if I'm pointing at you. And I'm also pointing at myself as well, because the second one is that as frontline workers or in our own families, we have a responsibility to support someone as much as possible to make a decision. So we need to really think, how can we best support somebody to make a decision? So if someone's scared, for example, about making a complex decision about having an operation, we need to really explore what's stopping them, what's worrying them. Why are they saying they won't have the operation? Is it because they're scared of hospitals, for example, or they don't have visual information about the operation? We mustn't just think we support people through verbal communication. We need to think about how else we can communicate the important information they need to take on board to make that decision. And in that support, we need to think, can the decision be delayed? Do we need other people, the specialists involved? Can we come back another day and discuss it? How urgent is that decision? So as much support to make a decision as possible is the second principle of the Mental Capacity Act. Brilliant. No, that's great. And makes really good, clear sense as well about if you're looking at things and assuming that people have capacity and then you go out and find evidence to support in either direction. Really, really important. Thank you. So what about your number three then? So the number three one, this is our middle finger. 
and obviously I don't want you to be thinking that I'm putting my middle finger up to you but it does kind of <laughs> illustrate the next point and this again remember it comes from the act so it's part of the law and it says that all of us everybody has the right to make unwise decisions and this is a really important part of the mental capacity act because often we'll be working with people who make unwise decisions things that we think are risky or unwise or someone for example might spend all of their wage on a new pair of shoes or a new car or something that we feel from the outside is extravagant and also worried that they won't be able to pay their bills so it's an unwise decision in our eyes but if somebody has capacity to make decisions, they have the right to make those unwise decisions. And this is a really important one as well to remember, because although people have the right to make those unwise decisions, that doesn't mean we forget our duty of care. As professionals, our duty of care is really important. So if someone has capacity to make decisions, but they're unwise. So, for example, I used to work with someone who had used heroin since he was 15. And then when I was working with him, he was in his 40s. And he was making the unwise decision in my mind not to continue getting help from the local drug agency. But he had capacity to make all of his decisions and he knew he'd had enough. And actually he wanted to be in his flat, listen to his music, do his own thing and not engage with drug agencies. So although I felt that was an unwise decision, I made sure that my duty of care was in place, that I would still visit him regularly, still talk to him about services make sure there was harm reduction practices in place and that he had things to use safely and he knew where to get chart and things. So yeah, it was an unwise decision in my eyes, but he had the right to make that. The other thing, unwise decisions to remember as well is to record in your case notes that someone is taking unwise decisions and that you've discussed it with them. You know, you've said to them, you feel it's an unwise decision and why, but make a note of that in your case recording as well. Duty of care is so important. Just because someone can make an unwise decision, it doesn't mean to say we should just ignore risky behaviour. Absolutely. And that can be a real balance, can't it? And you've given a really good example there of something that would really test some workers, volunteers, professionals with regards yes. to actually from their perspective. As you've explained, you viewed his choice as an unwise decision, but yes. the assessment was that he had mental capacity. Absolutely. And the other thing to remember is that values, our personal values, the things that we hold dear ourselves as individuals, actually might be different to the ones that our clients hold. And it's really important to think about whose values are important in this decision. We might think that it's important for our clients to go to college, for example, because we value education. But for our clients, there might be other things that they value more. So it's really important to just keep in mind what your values are and whether they're conflicting or not. Because actually, in terms of capacity and decision making, it's about the client. So it's really important to be mindful of your own personal values and whether they're conflicting and write this up in your case notes as well. And who gets to decide whether it's an unwise decision? Where does that come from? Because I can imagine that there's a lot of grey area here. Yeah, I think there is. And I think getting to know your client and understanding their behaviour and why they're perhaps choosing to behave like that is really important. And making sure that, you know, you get advice from your colleagues and you get advice from specialists, whether that's mental health or substance misuse. or mental capacity is really asking us to get to know our clients and talk through things with our clients and give them opportunities to get further information about their choices. But also making unwise decisions is often linked to change, you know, making change. And we know that it can be difficult for people to make changes, but people can only change behaviour when they feel able to. And our role is to support, help someone to get to that point. And hopefully they will, but themselves, because, you know, we know that we can't change somebody 
unless it's something they want. We know ourselves, don't we? If there's something other people want to change about us, we will only do that when it's right for us. So it's really important to balance that up. And that's why your case recording is so important. Your risk assessments and support plans need to reflect what's happening with your client day by day, really, or week by week. Yeah, and I think it's really important there where you've connected it to the wider support people are getting and you're talking about risk assessments and support plans because those unwise decisions are really connected to that risk assessment, isn't it? And assessing harmful behaviour a lot as well. There's the added complication of, you know, if, if someone has children and they're making unwise decisions, is that impacting on their children? Is that a safeguarding issue? Because unwise decisions will not take priority over the safeguarding of children and vulnerable adults. So it's always weighing that up in your mind and absolutely getting advice from, you know, maybe more experienced colleagues or specialists. And that's why supervision is so important as well, so that you can talk to your manager about some of the dilemmas that you're coming across, because you will quickly realise that no two days are the same when we're supporting people. Things change day by day. So it's really important to know where your support mechanisms are for that. Brilliant. No, that's great. Thank you, Laura. And really good explanation there and kind of helped me work through in my own mind how those unwise decisions need to be considered, particularly from the perspective of making decisions and keeping people safe as well and supporting themselves safe. Yeah, it's all linked to our, we call it defensible decision making. So we're making a decision. Can we defend it? Can we back it up? Can we explain why we've made that particular decision at that particular time with someone if they are making unwise decisions? What action are we taking to make sure that person's safe, but that we're not mollycoddling them, that we're not wrapping them up in cotton wool? Because that's not what the Mental Capacity Act wants us to do. It wants people to make their own choices and their own decisions. But there may be times when people need more support to do that. Just pass the index finger then. So where are we now? So we've done the index finger and we've done the middle finger. So we're now on to our, what we call our wedding finger, really, or, you know, the fourth finger on our hand. So I love the fact that you've just then seamlessly recognised that I've got all my fingers muddled up. That's okay. It's not a problem. (laughs) I'm so used to doing these five principles on my hand. It's coming more naturally, I think, to me. So our forefinger or our ring finger. This is the important one because if we get to the point where the evidence is saying that someone is lacking capacity to make a particular decision at a particular time, because we need to remember here that when we talk about capacity, it's about one decision at a particular time. So if our listeners are hearing other people saying she doesn't have capacity, always question that, always say capacity to make what decision? Because it's always about a particular decision at a particular time. So if there's evidence to say that actually there is a decision to be made and there's four things that are not happening. So, for example, someone's struggling to understand the information. Somebody can't retain that information long enough to make the decision. Someone is struggling to communicate what their decision is. And if someone's struggling to weigh up the information or the pros and cons of making a decision. So if those four things, if someone's struggling with those four things, then that's an indication, that's a red flag, really, that someone is lacking capacity to make this particular decision. So with that in mind, our decision then is to act on their behalf or make a decision for them. That has to be done in their best interest. So that's your ring finger principle. That's the fourth principle. It's got to be done in their best interest. And it's not the opinion of the person in the street about what those best interests are. It's about the best interests of that person. So what can they communicate? What can they tell us that they would want? What would they have wanted in the past when they had capacity to make that decision? Have they made similar decisions? And what did they do? What can family and friends and other workers tell us about that person that they would want? 
there's lots of different ways we can work out what's in someone's best interest. And again, it's not always what we would want ourselves. It's about trying to work out what that person would have wanted if they were able to make that decision for themselves. So it's, it's actually a really important part of the principles that anything done for somebody else on behalf of somebody else must be in their best interest. Yeah, and that links right back to that first principle, doesn't it? When you're talking about actually considering whether somebody has capacity of making that assumption that they do initially. Yes. All the way through, the Mental Capacity Act is really highlighting the importance of that individual person and recognising them as an individual and valuing them and helping us to see that we don't have the power to make a decision on behalf of somebody without considering what they would want and what would help and support them most effectively. Absolutely, yeah. Trying to think, you know, what would be in somebody's best interest, not what necessarily society would think is in their best interest, not what their opinion would be, but actually what would that person want? For example, if I've made a decision about where I live, so I live in the country, for example, if in the future my capacity is impaired because something that's happened and I need to you know, live somewhere else, I would hope that people would move me somewhere that would be in my best interest. So, for example, I wouldn't particularly want to live in the middle of a city. Now, it might not be practical for me to still live in the country, but I would hope that somebody would act on my best interest, that I wouldn't be near a very noisy, busy place, wouldn't be in my best interest, I wouldn't be happy there. So that's kind of an example of what would I have wanted in the past? How have I lived my life so far? That's what we mean by best interest. That's really helpful and really helped me work through it in my own mind of how I would think about somebody else's best interest as well. So thank you. Brilliant example there. And Lovely, that takes us on to our little finger, doesn't it? So It does. So it's really helped to remember these principles because obviously your little finger is your smallest finger. And so we've talked about decisions that we might need to make on behalf of somebody else because they are lacking capacity to make a particular decision. This also just links into the actual test of capacity. You know, what are we actually talking about when we talk about capacity? For us to assess somebody's capacity or to doubt that someone's got capacity, there needs to be an impairment of their brain or their mind. That could be temporary. So I could bang my head today and have concussion and not be able to make decisions later on in the day. That will lift eventually. Or it could be a permanent impairment, something that I was born with. I could have a learning difficulty or I may have used substances in my youth and now that's impaired the functioning of my brain. And then that impairment then has to have an impact on my decision making. If those two things aren't there, then people have capacity to make all of those decisions. So it's really important just to think about that, that the act is very clear that there has to be an impairment, something wrong, something going on with the functioning. And then that has to be getting in the way of our decision making. So in that context, then, if we have to make a decision or take action for somebody else, we need to think about the least restrictive way of doing that. So what's going to take away their freedom in the least way? So, for example, it might be that we have somebody who eats everything in sight, okay, and doesn't have capacity to make a decision about when to eat and how much to eat. And actually, it's having a massive impact on their health. Someone maybe with a learning difficulty or another impairment. A restrictive way of supporting that person would just be to take all their choice away completely and not allow them access to any food unless it's put in front of them. That would be very restrictive. So a least restrictive way of doing that is to give people choice 
but to help them maybe to not have all of the food visible all of the time, but maybe to have a choice of what would they like for lunch, maybe two or three choices, like visual choices. So it's a least restrictive way. We could take their freedom away completely and just give them what we feel they should be eating. But actually, a least restrictive way is to give people a choice. I worked with a lady who had severe mental illness, schizophrenia brought on by years of drug issues, and she didn't have capacity. She had capacity to do lots of things, but she didn't have capacity to control her visitors. And she had a lot of people using drugs and dealing drugs from her property. We had a lot of complaints about the antisocial behaviour. She didn't have capacity to control that, to deal with that. So a decision was made in her best interest, not to evict her, which would have been very restrictive, to move her would have been very restrictive, but actually to deal with the visitors. And in the end, we were able to get an injunction against those visitors within the town she lived in, actually. So it was a least restrictive way of supporting that woman. A restrictive way would have been, actually, let's move her out of her town, away from these people. That would have really harmed her, actually, and wouldn't have been in her best interest and would have been very restrictive. So it's a really powerful principle. And if you think of it in terms of yourself, if someone's making decisions on behalf of you, you would still want as much freedom and choice as possible, wouldn't you? You wouldn't want it all taken away. Yeah, and that's what I think stayed with me when myself and my husband were doing our last empower of attorney forms was actually that open discussion we had about we would want as much choice as possible for each of the individual questions. And actually just recognising how important that is, I think is a really big learning point. It is because in the past, there has been a lot of bad practice around this area of restriction. We think way back before the Mental Capacity Act came in, we had people living in what we used to call big mental institutions where there was absolutely no choice and they were very, very restrictive in terms of even what clothes people would wear. People would wear communal clothes, for example, and wouldn't have any choice at all in what they ate or whether they saw anybody from their family. We've come a lot further since then, but there's still more work to do. And we must challenge ourselves in our mind that people deserve freedom and choice and empowerment despite an impairment, even very, very severe impairments. We must look always for the least restrictive way of supporting that person. It's a real challenge for us to have that, I think, in the forefront of our mind when we're working with people. What can I do that preserves that freedom and that choice and that empowerment? Because every human being deserves that. Uh, Laura, thank you so much for being our guest today. I've really enjoyed talking to you and learning more detail about the Mental Capacity Act. And I'm hoping that our listeners have found it useful to hear you talk through those five principles. And I certainly am still looking at my fingers now. Good. (laughs) Yeah, wiggling them away and thinking about actually... How can I ensure that as I move forward, that I really am thinking about what is in people's best interest? Is there anything you would like to say to our listeners to finish off with? Just also to go away and remember that you can all assess capacity, all of us. When you're talking to your clients, you can assess capacity through your interventions and ask more questions if you think something's not right and ask for support know where your support mechanisms are, make sure your case notes reflect your conversations and your concerns and what action you've taken. And don't feel that mental capacity is such a huge thing that actually it weighs on your shoulders alone. Actually, it's a collaborative team approach. So please get support and advice if you're struggling at all. And that's one now that you've just finished on with regards to we can all assess capacity that basic initial stage it's really important that we do have faith in our own ability to assess whether we need to seek further help or further assessment for somebody 
Absolutely. I mean, the first step really is being aware of those principles, using them, and then if in doubt, talk to somebody else, talk to your manager, your colleagues, other specialists, and get information from your client. You will eventually be someone who really knows your client, probably better than quite a lot of people in their lives. So use that experience as well. Brilliant. Well, Laura, I really appreciate your time today. I think people find this really, really helpful. If you'd like any more information about the Mental Capacity Act or Laura or any of our training, please do look in the show notes and do go to our website, taytraining.org.uk. Thanks so much for listening today. We hope it's been time well spent. I'd like to finish by saying a huge thank you. Whether you're working or volunteering on the front line with vulnerable and or complex people, a manager supporting a team, or part of the cogs that keep the wheels of a frontline organisation turning, truly, thank you. It's only together that we can help people stay safe and prevent harm and abuse. Please don't forget about yourself though. No one, no matter how amazing, can pour from an empty cup. There is a reason emotional resilience features in all our courses, irrelevant of the subject. It's because it matters. You matter. Take care of yourself. If you'd like to know more about me, Tammy Banks, Tay Training, or the Training for Influence methodology, please have a read of the show notes. You can also find us on all social media platforms at Tay Training, or contact me directly via email, tammy at taytraining.org.uk. If you hadn't noticed already, I love to talk. Have a good day.